Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. I'm Zaid Wahab, and today we will discuss what is widely considered the least appealing part of Muawiyah's legacy, the matter of his succession. As the founder of the Ummah's first dynasty, you've probably already guessed that he successfully passed the Caliphate on to his son, Yazid, and it was by no means an easy feat. I've been keeping a few narrations from you, as they all relate to this, so there will be a little jumping around stuff we recently covered before we progress with the history in episode 20, Succeeding the Dynast. not sure how effective dividing our last episode up into themes really ended up being. I felt like we talked a lot about the Caliphate's expansion and the wars Muawiyah is remembered for, and then bunched everything else in one big mess at the end. Well, this episode won't suffer from that kind of divided focus, as it's all about the same thing, how Muawiyah made a dynasty out of a caliphate. It's a story that the Arab narrations don't agree on, And to be honest, I'm a little disappointed if you're in any way surprised by that. They outdo their usual dissonance by not even agreeing on whose idea it was, which is just crazy to me. There are so many different approaches to this story that pro- and anti-Umayyad sources will sometimes agree on the facts but explain them in ways that serve their respective narratives. So for example, anti-Umayyad accounts might say that Muawiyah intentionally corrupted the caliphate by making it dynastic whereas pro-Umayyad accounts will insist that it was part of his duty as caliph to leave the Ummah in good hands, and what better hands than the ones he had personally groomed for the role. Similarly, other pro-Umayyad sources might report that Muawiyah never intended to bequeath his son, but Yazid was so popular that there was simply no alternative. While some anti-Umayyad accounts agree that it wasn't Muawiyah's idea, but that another Dahiya, al-Mughira specifically, duped him into doing it, in order to turn the Arabs against him. All this disagreement only grows louder and more discordant as we move forward, so I'm going to go ahead and cut it out of our narrative, and just point to it every now and again instead. It seems clear that Muawiyah, who had a keen understanding of his people and their politics, kept his eye on the possibility that his son could succeed him and inched towards it every chance he got. Practically speaking, Muawiyah just had to make sure that everyone would pledge allegiance to Yazid once he was gone, and one straightforward way he encouraged that was by giving Yazid some prominent positions of authority to boost his public image, like those high-profile raids on the Byzantine capital we discussed last time. We also mentioned Al-Akhtar, the court poet who crafted an illustrious body of work, much of it made up of praise for his generous patron Yazid. If this doesn't strike you as very effective, then maybe that's because I haven't given Arabic poetry its due. It was an extremely potent political medium, and Al-Akhtal was on another level. Ten of his works were posthumously appraised as flawless examples of traditional Bedouin poetry, making him the greatest poet of his time. The fact that Al-Akhtal's works wielded such political influence is yet another reminder of how tribal Arab politics remained at this stage. Bedouins had always found honor in being lionized by their poets, and they struck at their rivals in verse before anything else, and the Umayyads had the sharpest tongue in the Ummah. Not only was his praise eloquent, but al-Akhtal's satires of their enemies were scathing, 
earning him a place at the Umayyad court for a very long time. But back to the problem at hand. You could only do so much to puff someone up, and Muawiyah wanted to improve his son's odds beyond what some slick PR could achieve, and that meant taking care of the competition. Now I hope it goes without saying that every one of these stories has as many deniers as it has different versions, but there I just said it, and this disclaimer applies to all these tales about the different people whom the caliph saw as a potential threat to his plans for succession. Now apart from the Karajites, nobody really contested that only Quraysh had the right to leadership, so there was only one tribe for Muawiyah to worry about. There were still plenty of ambitious Qurayshis, however, whom the rest of the Ummah looked up to. We'll approach things chronologically, at least as far as we can tell, which means we'll start with Abdul Rahman ibn al-Khalid ibn al-Walid. You remember Khalid, right? The amazing general who basically defeated the Byzantines and conquered the half of their empire which Muawiyah now governed? Well, like him, his son Abdul Rahman was celebrated for his many military accomplishments in Syria. At some point, probably during Uthman's time, Abdul Rahman was even put in charge of the frontier city of Homs and asked to command its armies against the Byzantines. He fought against Ali's forces during the bloody battle of Safin, and after Muawiyah's ultimate victory, he returned to Homs and led several raids against the Byzantines once again. So pretty much his entire storied career was in service of Muawiyah. Well, it's not the service that put him on Muawiyah's to-do list. It's all the glory that he earned rendering it. The story goes that while congratulating the armies of Homs for one of their latest winter raids, the caliph got chummy with the troops for a minute, and after he commented on their obvious admiration for their commander, Abdul Rahman, some replied that they thought he would make for an amazing caliph one day. And so the die was cast. Obviously, there are many different variations on the story, but the level of disagreement here is actually pretty low. And after beating around the bush a little, they all boiled down to the disloyalty from Abdul Rahman's troops freaking Muawiyah out. Abdul Rahman bin Khalid ibn Walid died of poison on his way back from a winter raid against the Byzantines in 666 AD. The thing about poison is that it was one of Muawiyah's favorite weapons. You might remember that after he'd used it to take care of Ali's right-hand man, Malik al-Ashtar, he bragged to Amr ibn Ras by saying some of God's soldiers hide in honey. Our sources also tell us that Muawiyah's personal doctor was a Christian physician with extensive knowledge of venoms and other poisons. And a few years later, Abdul Rahman's son avenged him by taking that man's life. Another way we can tell that Muawiyah was blamed for Abdul Rahman's death is that Umayyad relations with his clan, the Banu Maksum, immediately deteriorated. They didn't turn hostile or anything, but as an influential clan living near the Hijazi cities of Mecca and Medina, their grievances significantly soured the mood against the caliph on the west of the Arabian Peninsula. This turned out to be surprisingly significant. Although Muawiyah really, really hated it when his doctor was murdered a few years later, he let his killer go with a simple fine, probably so as not to further erode his relationship with the other Qurayshi clans. Now I'm sure Muawiyah knew what he was doing when he ordered the hit, but honestly, Abdul Rahman didn't seem like such a threat to Umayyad control when I first read about him. There were other great commanders around during this highly martial period for the Arabs, each with their own throng of loyal troops. But what set Abdul Rahman apart is that he was of Quraysh, and so he could actually aspire to the position of caliph. This even meant that his strong connections to the Syrian tribes were also a liability, 
Since he presented them with a potential alternative to Muawiyah, he risks splitting the power base upon which Umayyad authority was upheld. It's clear that as far as Muawiyah was concerned, the Qurayshi most worth worrying about was surely Al-Hasan ibn Ali ibn Abi Talib. You may recall that Muawiyah had to negotiate with him to get him to abdicate so he could be caliph, at one point even promising to name him as his own successor. Of course, Hassan saw through the, quote, promise, and you may remember that one of the terms for his abdication was that Muawiyah would not name a successor during his reign, and instead allow the ummah to choose its own way forward after his death. Al-Hassan had not resisted the Umayyad very effectively towards the end of the first fitna, after his father was assassinated. His support in Iraq became tenuous and gave way before very long. But as always, the Hashemite clan remained a rallying point for anti-Umayyad sentiment, and as its leader, Al-Hassan's popularity only grew as the new order of affairs alienated more and more Arabs. The palpable distrust the Umayyads felt for the Iraqi tribes increasingly turned them towards Hashemite support, and we already noted how Al-Mughira was picked as governor of Kufa precisely because his brand of careful craftiness was considered perfect for the unruly city. These dynamics were surely all part of why Muawiyah insisted the Hashemites be cursed at every mosque before and after all five prayers, and why Marwan was always trash-talking Al-Hassan in Medina. In fact, our sources all report the long and sad story of Hujr bin Adi, a supporter of Adi's who was put to death for objecting to this cursing. Hujr was also a companion of the Prophet's, and so his execution was very badly received, especially in Mecca and Medina, and it provided a sympathetic boost to the Hashemites he was so loyal to. I'd like to tell you more about him, but it's not clear if he was killed early on, under al-Mughira, or under Ziyad when he took Kufa over after al-Mughira's death. Most sources prefer that last one, saying that al-Mughira tolerated Hujr's complaints to keep the peace, while Ziyad was far less pliable. This is all to say that Muawiyah was keenly aware of the political threat posed by al-Hasan. Most sources agree that al-Hasan was poisoned by his wife, Jada'a bint al-Ash'ath, in the year 670, while a minority of them say that that's crazy and he just died suddenly one day. If you were surprised by her name, then I commend you for paying such close attention. And yes, she was the daughter of that al-Ash'ath, the Yemeni tribal lord who played a huge role in thwarting Ali's victory during the critical battle of Safin and eroding support for the caliph afterwards. Her marriage to al-Hasan had predated all that, and many of those who argue that she had nothing to do with al-Hasan's death say that she's just being blamed for her father's sins. Maybe, who knows. And those who blame her have all sorts of theories about why she did it for Muawiyah, though nobody seems to question that it was somehow instigated by the Umayyad. The more dramatic narrations say he promised her lots of money and his son Yazid's hand in marriage, and that when she showed up after the deed was done, he paid her but then told her that his son's life was too precious for him to entrust it to some lady who had just killed her husband. On his deathbed, Al-Hasan asked to be buried next to his grandfather, the Prophet, but Aisha resisted as that meant digging up the floor beneath her house, and when the governor, Marwan, and his loyalists threatened the funeral procession with violence if they did not relent, Al-Hussein agreed to bury his brother elsewhere in order to minimize any tension from the affair, which I think was very fitting considering Al-Hassan's history of prioritizing the Ummah's unity. With his death, Al-Hussein became the clan's leader, and the Hashemites no longer posed the same sort of political threat to the Umayyads. Although Hussein was the son of Ali bin Abi Talib, grandson to the Prophet through his mother Fatima, 
He'd sort of grown up in his brother's shadow, socially speaking. He wasn't much younger and had been there throughout his clan's struggle against the Umayyads, but having never been pledged allegiance to nor proclaimed caliph meant that he lacked some of the heft of al-Hassan's standing. Muawiyah did not let up on the cursing of the Hashemites, but he didn't try to poison Hussein either, so we can say that he took no more active measures and returned to his usual preemptive tactics for keeping Hashemite support at bay. After al-Hassan's assassination, there weren't really any other Qurayshi clans for the Umayyads to worry about, but that didn't mean that Muawiyah could rest easy yet. After all, there were many other Umayyads who had done quite well for themselves now that their clan was so ascendant. One of them in particular posed a very tricky problem for Muawiyah. Sa'id ibn Uthman was the son of the Umm's third caliph, and therein lay the issue. Muawiyah had justified his rebellion against the fourth caliph by framing it as a quest to obtain justice for Uthman, repeatedly claiming that the fourth caliph had either colluded with, encouraged, or harbored his predecessor's killers. Unlike his brothers, Sa'id understood that this could be translated into real political power, and there's this unlikely story about a conversation between him and Muawiyah. He is said to have approached the caliph after hearing rumors that he intended to nominate his son Yazid as his successors. He argued that he should be named instead, because his father was greater than Yazid's father, his mother greater than Yazid's mother, and he himself was greater than Yazid. Muawiyah responded tactfully, admitting that he could never hope to measure up to the greatness of Uthman, and that Sa'id's mother was indeed greater than Yazid's mother, because the first was of Quraysh, while the latter was from the local tribes. Depending on who you're reading, he either kept silent about the last claim or made some vague comment, but the point is, Muawiyah was aware of Sa'id's ambitions and didn't feel like he could address them directly. The fact that his clansmen had reach and ambition hadn't escaped the caliph, and he went to great lengths to keep them either satisfied or out of the way. For an example of the former, Sa'id had been wed to Muawiyah's half-sister, and Uthman's other sons were similarly integrated into the ruling family to keep everyone on the same team. Even Muawiyah himself had married at least one of Uthman's widows to minimize the gap between the two families. While this stratagem worked fine, its downside was that by elevating kin, you risked encouraging them into competition. Sort of how Muawiyah's marriage into Uthman's family solidified his claim that he was acting on their behalf. Sa'id's story is just a fun diversion for exploring some of the dynamics of the age, and it won't really go anywhere. So let's pause it to start a more consequential one, involving another influential Umayyad, Marwan ibn al-Hakam, the governor of Medina. You may remember that I stressed how Muawiyah had used someone prominent for the ex-capital, and being governor of Medina boosted Marwan's standing within the caliphate even further. Six years into it, and Muawiyah was no longer comfortable with the sort of influence Marwan had accumulated, and he had him replaced by yet another influential clansman, Sa'id ibn al-As, the guy who was governing Kufa for Uthman before it rebelled against him. Not that it matters. The sources disagree on the reason that Muawiyah had Marwan replaced, but I think it was an obvious attempt to cut him down to size, as Marwan was stripped of considerable wealth and property during this dismissal. Timing-wise, this happened right after Al-Hassan had been poisoned, about ten years into Muawiyah's reign. A few years later, Muawiyah ordered the new governor of Medina to tear down Marwan's house in the city. At this stage, both Sa'id and Marwan were important figures, and I believe Muawiyah was trying to weaken both their hands by getting them to fight one another. 
Saeed refused to go through with the demolition, and so Muawiyah had him replaced with Marwan, and now ordered Marwan to tear Saeed's house down as punishment for his disobedience. After talking it over with Saeed, the two are said to have written to the caliph and chastised him for trying to come between them, and after realizing that he was only driving them closer together, Muawiyah finally relented. Thanks to all the fervent disagreement, we can't be sure how Muawiyah declared that his son was going to succeed him. His first step was probably having his governors announce it during one of their speeches at their local mosques. Some narrations say the powerful and capable Ziad was still around and managed to keep the Iraqis compliant until he passed away in 673, but it's unlikely that Muawiyah would have tried to have his son confirmed so early. The whole idea of pledging allegiance to someone didn't really lend itself to naming a successor, as it seemed to imply that you could pledge allegiance to two people at the same time, a violation of the core concept. The furthest anyone had ever pushed naming their successor was the first caliph Abu Bakr, when he strongly recommended Omar succeed him, even writing it into his will. Still though, the Arabs only pledged their allegiance to him after Abu Bakr's death. Anyway, I say 673 is a little too early, because in 675, Muawiyah made an impromptu visit to Mecca, Medina. The visit is given religious undertones in some sources, but its purpose seems to have been to personally take stock of his tribe's attitude towards his plans for succession. The resistance Muawiyah met there all came from the most sensible source, the children of previous caliphs. We already mentioned the son of Uthman, and we'll get back to Sa'id in a minute, but the sons of Abu Bakr, Omar, Ali, and even Abdullah, son of Az-Zubayr, all objected strenuously to the idea of Muawiyah's son succeeding him. It's worth noting that all these Qurayshi men were prominent due to their direct filial relationships to leaders who represented the Ummah's glorious past. This hints at two things. One, that the Arabs were no strangers to sons inheriting authority from their fathers. And two, that those who were outside of Muawiyah's inner circle were already nostalgic for a past in which they had more say. And so the sons of previous caliphs became potent figures as the Ummah pondered its future. See, now I'm worried that I've introduced too many ambitious Qurayshis, so let's set everything straight before moving on. The children of ex-caliphs were one problem Muawiyah took note of during his lesser pilgrimage, and we'll set them aside until next time. Then there were the other prominent elders of the Umayyad clan, especially Marwan, who was only growing more influential with time, despite having been dismissed from his post as governor of Medina twice. Finally, somehow in both camps, was Sa'id ibn Uthman, whose direct descent from Uthman made him untouchable to Muawiyah. What's worse is that he was young, brave, driven, and in 675 he asked the caliph for a governorship, which is when Muawiyah got the idea of using Sa'id's ambition against him. Muawiyah gave Sa'id 4,000 troops and tasked him with leading them to the dangerous lands of Khurasan. We're told that these weren't exactly the choicest warriors either, and that Sa'id had to resort to recruiting fighters from tribes he came across and even highwaymen. When he got to Central Asia, he raided deeper than the Arabs ever had before, conquering cities and peoples with incredible speed. In a little over a year, he had made Bukhara and Samarqand tributaries of the Caliphate and had thoroughly defeated the Sogdians, who had ruled the area up until his arrival. All the consequent military glory did not sit well with Muawiyah, and Said was dismissed from his position in 677. 
It is around this late in the 70s that I think the caliph made the public push for Yazid as his successor. His governors gave speeches encouraging those under their charge to pledge their allegiance, or more accurately, to pledge to pledge it, when the time came. We're told that Marwan didn't succeed in convincing the sons of the previous caliphs to get on board. It's around then that he was replaced with Muawiyah's nephew. Around the same time, Muawiyah hosted a large gathering of tribal elders at his court in Damascus, and he had some close loyalists publicly clamor for Yazid to be officially named his successor to spare the Ummah any evils which could creep in during a power vacuum. Everyone enthusiastically pledged, or technically pledged to pledge. There was very little resistance to the caliph's wishes in places where Umayyad loyalists had been empowered, provinces like Egypt, Syria, and Palestine. Iraq had been pacified quite effectively by the capable Dahiyah Ziyad bin Abi Sufyan, but since his death earlier in the 70s, Muawiyah had to employ up to four different governors to replace him, and none were as skillful at managing its headstrong and resentful tribes. Only those who were directly on the Umayyad payroll could be counted on there, but luckily for Muawiyah, that lack of enthusiasm could only turn into a problem if some Qurayshi tried claiming the mantle of leadership. In Mecca and Medina, there was even less enthusiasm for Muawiyah's son, with the prominent sons of the ex-caliphs making it clear that they would withhold their pledges to Yazid when the time came. They were more vague about their plans otherwise, saying only that they wanted to wait and see what the Ummah chose to do. Narrations focus on two of them, Abdullah ibn Zubayr and, of course, Al-Hussein bin Ali. We've mentioned Abdullah before, especially during his father's rebellion at ultimate death in the episode on the Battle of the Camel. Abdullah's legitimacy stemmed from the fact that he was considered a respected companion of the Prophet, and he was a favored nephew of Aisha, mother of the faithful, but his star really rose during this time of resistance to Muawiyah's choice of successor. The Hashemite Hussein was favored by the Iraqi tribes who wrote to him with promises of support a lot more now that they were being asked to commit themselves to pledge to Yazid after Muawiyah. Abdullah ibn Zubayr also attracted more support from their all-important tribe, the Quraysh, and he seems to have possessed the charisma and gravitas necessary to inspire many of their allies to follow him as well. With this, the old battle lines were being drawn up once more. The re-emergence of the three factions reveals how brittle the unity forged by Muawiyah really was. Roughly speaking, there were those who supported the Hashemites, and Kufa remained an important center of support for their cause. The Umayyads controlled Syria and drew most of their power from the strong relationships they had built with its tribes. Their wealth had grown their networks of patronage, and the clan was so powerful that there were now multiple elders vying for prominence within it. And finally, the rest of the Qurayshi nobility seemed to have found a champion in Abdullah ibn Zubayr. It's important to note that neither of the two did anything to actively undermine Umayyad power while Muawiyah was still alive. That would have been a dishonorable breach of their pledges to the caliph, and few things were looked down upon as sharply as sedition. Muawiyah passed away in the year 680, and since Yazid wasn't around, he left his son a letter underlining his last bits of political wisdom. Muawiyah doesn't seem to have been worried about other Umayyads, and the clan may have been inadvertently united by the threats they now found organizing to strip them of their position at the top of the Ummah's hierarchy. Said ibn Uthman made his trip from Khurasan to Medina as soon as he heard of Muawiyah's death 
probably hoping to offer his clan a more attractive alternative to the unpopular Yazid. We'll talk about Yazid in more detail next time, but having grown up surrounded by the luxuries of the settled folk, the Bedouin saw him as a pampered and spoiled youth. Said took fifty Sangdian noblemen as his personal slaves, and he put them to work on his estate in Medina. These fifty noble prisoners were unaccustomed to the indignities of slavery, and one day they locked up the estate, killed their new master, and then themselves. The sudden elimination of the one other Umayyad who was positioning to challenge him must have really helped solidify Yazid's position as his clan's only possible choice for caliph. This is a good point for us to end the episode on. Muawiyah did all he could to maximize his son's chances at taking the reins after him, and honestly I'm not sure how he could have done better. Not that I applaud his choices or anything, all I'm saying is that if you wanted your son to rule after you, you'd be hard-pressed to come up with a better plan of attack than the one Muawiyah patiently advanced over more than a decade. Did it work? Join me next time to find out, here on The Caliphs the rise and fall of Arab power.